Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. It's essential that we do whatever we can to keep the public engaged and interested in this war. One of the roles of, of every journalist who's there operating is not only to deliver the facts, but to help people connect with the people of Ukraine. Welcome to the National Security Podcast, brought to you by the ANU National Security College with support from policyforum.net. In this episode, journalist Sean Rubenstein Dunlop joins Will Stoltz to discuss his recent experiences reporting the war unfolding in Ukraine and the importance of public interest journalism. Before we get into it, we'd like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal people, traditional owners of the land from which we broadcast. We pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging. So, Sean, thank you for joining me. It's my pleasure. Uh, So I wanted to speak to you because our audience may know you quite well from their TV screens, um, seeing your recent reporting from Ukraine. Um, You're really, I suppose, a number of a handful of Australian uh, journalists that have been on the ground there. Um, But you've also been undertaking investigative reporting, including on national security issues for several years now. So there's obviously plenty I'd like to discuss with you. Um, But to start with, would you mind telling us of how uh, your your assignment in Ukraine began, um, and I guess you know when did you find out you were heading over there? That sort of thing. Oh look, um, I was sitting in a cafe uh, in Sydney's CBD uh, the day after the Russian invasion. It was eleven thirty a.m. and I looked at my phone and I had about six missed calls at least from the foreign editor, deporter. And I thought, oh, something is up. I, I, <laughs> I better call her back. Uh, and um, she said, uh, are you still interested in going to cover the war in Ukraine? Uh, there's a flight at 9.30 p.m. tonight. Can you be on it? And um, can you let me know within a few minutes if you've got wow. approval um from your boss because I, I work for the investigations team, not not for our um, not for our international team. So of course I said yes. I'd already um, told her that I'd, I'd be interested in in any such opportunity, uh, and then I had about six or seven hours to pack, wow, prepare, and um, get on a plane, and not a lot of time to actually uh, think about the assignment. So I, I went into uh, ABC HQ at Ultimo, got fitted for a flak jacket and ballistic helmet and um, tested out the gas mask, um, got my gear sorted, uh, went home furiously packed, um, overpacked uh, <laughs> as always, but <laughs> it's an anxiety response for me. Um, and then before I knew it, I was uh, I was on a plane. Um, which fortunately had Wi-Fi, 
so I could tie up loose ends on projects right. that I'd been working on and, um, you know, get my head across what I was about to, um, what I was about to get into. Yeah. Uh, so we had to hit the ground running. Um, we were, uh, in Poland, uh, on the Ukrainian, on the Polish side of the Ukrainian border for about five days, um, covering the devastating humanitarian crisis and, um, the inflow of refugees, uh, into Poland, which is, I think, more than two million now when I last checked, probably way more by the time, um, you run this. Uh, so, uh, we had five days there. And then from there, we, um, we went into, we traveled across the border, uh, into Ukraine, um, in the opposite direction to, to most people, obviously. Everyone's trying to get out of there, but, um, we journalists run towards yeah. the crisis. Uh, and, uh, went into, um, to relieve a very, uh, very tired, um, Isabella Higgins from, from her duties and, um, went from there. So, you know, in that, in that kind of whirlwind, that chaos that you're moving into, because this would have been in the early, you know, early days of the, the initial conflict, you know, how do you prioritize or triage kind of what stories you're going to tell? Like, is it just a process of, you know, what you get to first or do you, you go into a conflict zone like Ukraine with a with a, a bit of a plan of what stories you want to get out in those initial kind of days of the conflict? I think it was quite straightforward, really. First, when we were um, in Poland on the on the border, um, the remit was just to um, to cover the um, growing humanitarian crisis, and <clears throat> it was a story where uh, interview interviews just um, landed in your lap, so mm. to speak. You're just at the border meeting people as they come across and a lot of people really did want to talk um ukrainians really uh want uh, to share their stories and want the world to know what's going on there was no shortage of of people and no shortage of of things to film um and then going into ukraine well as the lead broadcast correspondent there um your role is to is to cover the main developments of the war every day, so it's not so much an issue of making a a, a choice rather than choosing what you don't right. cover. Um, and each day, something more horrific seemed to happen, uh, so it wasn't very much of a challenge to decide on what what to focus on mm. either um but then of course you've got to find the balance between reporting on what's happening far away from you um in places like Mariupol where no one can go in uh, uh or should really for their own safety uh and then balancing that with um elements you find closer to you yeah yeah okay uh, and I, I suppose just on that, I guess I'm interested to get your views on um, those so-called kind of citizen journalists um, who have who have rushed into the conflict, and we see kind of 
an array of different types of people. Like, you know, I've, I've noted as a couple of Australian military veterans have gone in, but then you kind of get people who are a bit more kind of disaster tourists going in with a camera and broadcasting to Instagram. I mean, what's your kind of view of, of that type of activity? Do you think it, is it helpful because, you know, they're circumventing established media, they're able to get a message out there perhaps quicker, there's no editor over their shoulder or producer? Um, or do you think there's, you know, other issues that kind of arise with that type of reporting? Look, I didn't um, meet any. I didn't come across any face-to-face. Of course, I've seen the work of some of them. Um, I would say that I think that um, the fact that people are able to film um this war on their phones, uh, whether they're citizen journalists uh, or just regular citizens, victims, um, really changes the dimensions of what we're able to do. And, um, you know, it's a real problem for the Russians uh, because it's, it's, it's much h- harder to, to hide atrocities. Mm. And, you know, there's some really powerful phone vision which has um, formed the basis of of some extraordinary reports and particularly in places like Mariupol where there was only one media one mainstream media team that that had to leave um, but in terms of going more to the point of your question um, I think it just depends a little bit on the citizen mm. journalist you know it's it's um, can be a really good thing uh, when people can, can I guess, circumvent the established methods and demands of mainstream media. Um, but, you know, it can also be very risky if they don't have the same commitment to, to accuracy or, yeah. or the same ethics um, or have, a, have an agenda. Um, and we're, of course, uh, you know, seeing a lot of disinformation, mm. misinformation, uh, on social media, and, and they can they can be tools um, in that as well. Yeah, I suppose witting or unwitting, I guess. Yeah, that's um, right. And, and kind of on that point, you know, this has probably been one of the most broadcast conflicts uh, ever, really. You know, the, the, the density with which we're able to get, um, you know, information about this conflict from, from Twitter, live-streamed on Instagram, plus the established media. I mean, in that... In that context, I suppose it's been observed that um, by some analysts that the Ukrainians have been very, very good at kind of winning information fights, so to speak. If, for you, does that present a challenge, you know, on the ground doing your job because you're there to report facts in a balanced manner? Um, and I suppose uh, ideally uh, examine both sides of a story, um, but, you know, both sides are trying to shape shape what you report i suppose they're trying to shape those facts and you don't necessarily have access uh to both sides so i mean how do you kind of navigate that knowing that that the environment that you're contributing to that information environment is actually kind of part of the fight that's part of the battle space yeah it's an enormous challenge and i think uh the ukrainian president volodymyr zelensky is uh, uh an extraordinarily skilled propagandist um He's a showman, you know, he's a former comedian, actor, uh, and, um, he's, he's done an incredible job at inspiring his people. Um, but there are many times that we have to question 
the veracity of of the information that um, that his government is is putting out. Um, and on the flip side, uh, being in Ukraine and 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 um, uh, not being in Russia, uh, we it, that's a real challenge. You know, not having access to um, to what's going on there, to what people are doing and thinking, um, and 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 the Western media has has pretty much all pulled pulled out of Russia. So I think that inevitably um, creates real challenges for us. Um, I think the information war is also messing with people's heads a lot um, in the war zone. Uh, people are becoming more paranoid. I, I noticed that shift just in the space of a few weeks and, you know, that creates safety risks as well. Uh, we um, we uh, had a bit of a tangle um, with some local people in a in a uh, in a village near um Yavarov uh north of Lviv so in western Ukraine where a uh, Ukrainian a key Ukrainian military base was uh was struck by missiles it was a a, a base where NATO uh forces were had trained um the Ukrainian military for many years and where the foreign legion so a legion of foreign fighters was based as well and uh the locals in that village um thought we were accused us of being russian spies all right uh, and um you know it was a little bit hairy frankly uh and no matter what accreditation we showed them or even you know a story of mine from the news mm. in Ukraine, um, they they didn't believe us. So I think that changes the dimension, the dimensions for journalists, and um, makes it potentially very risky when when anyone could be anyone could be a spy, um, you know. Uh, and so we're in the early stages of this war, um, and I think that that information battle is just going to get. Mm. more and more intense as time goes on and um we as journalists will be uh questioned and uh you know subject to um misinformation campaigns but that just makes it all the more important mm. that we check our facts um you know that 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 we uphold the standards we hold dear um, and also that we are up front with the audience when we can't confirm claims. Yeah. Um, again, in Mariupol, when a local official is saying, you know, describing a scene or explaining what's happened, it's crucial for us to say, well, we, we couldn't independently confirm this. The intense focus that the media has had on this conflict has actually been a really pivotal part to generating the swift political action to respond to it in a way because ordinary people are consuming it so intensely. Do you see, therefore, the media as having a responsibility to keep our attention on the conflict in that way or do you think, you know, as often happens with so many international crises, as it shifts, as it kind of moves into a different phase and potentially kind of slips from the headlines, um, you know, do, do, you, do you see a responsibility to, to keep bringing it back into focus or is it just, you know, once the audience stops paying attention, 
you move with the audience. It's essential that we do whatever we can to keep the public engaged and interested in this war. Um, you know, it's it's just an enormous story. Um, and I think at the moment we're in that kind of shock phase mm. where people are, 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 are deeply interested and um, paying great attention. And um, that's increased by the fact that, um, you know, that, that Russia is responsible for uh, increasingly horrific mm. attacks. It's like it's a, it, it's like reporting on many many terrorist attacks every single day, mm. and 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 that uh, that keeps the public very engaged. For now, I'd also say that there are just some extraordinary um, uh, camera operators and photographers working in Ukraine right now, and they are filming such intimate, gripping, shocking mm. uh, vision and interviews where I don't think the public has ever been able to feel so um, in the midst of, of what's going on as they are right now. And uh, they're filming really raw interviews with people who are who are who are going going through it um you know at great risk yeah. at great risk to themselves so um that has really been that has really aided us in our efforts to um to to keep people engaged and to care um but i think that you know one of my roles as a correspondent there, one of the roles of, of every journalist who's there operating um, is not only to deliver the facts but to help people connect mm. with um, with the with the people of Ukraine, um, with the soldiers of both countries um, and um, try to transmit some empathy yeah. all the way across uh, to Australia. I, I think that's uh, a, a critical role um, that we undertake as as observers bearing witness to, to this. Yeah, and I suppose we can we can actually kind of think of the tangible impacts of that. You know, we're recording this in, in London and it's been interesting. You know, you go into so many different shops and there's a there's a bucket there raising money for Ukraine and then you, you know, you see the stories of um, so many people across Europe who are letting in Ukrainian refugees into their homes, you know, in Italy or in Poland and elsewhere in Moldova. And you do wonder, you're like, yeah, if it wasn't for the fact that this story was being told in such a gripping, visceral way, would people be as kind of emotionally engaged and committed into um, into this conflict as they are? So, yeah, I think you can kind of see the fruits of your <laughs> good labour all around us. Yeah, and I, I think that... Um you know, the work of British media, um, you know, like the BBC and Sky and Channel 4 um, has has really made a difference in the UK government's stance towards Ukrainian refugees, mm -hmm. for example. Um, yeah, and, and I think that in, um, in delivering this news with empathy, uh, it's... Um, it doesn't decrease your objectivity, um, um, but is 
is a means of of um, delivering humanity. Mm. You know, allowing allowing humans across the world to to connect mm. with this situation. We'll be right back. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. So I want to move now, I guess, to your kind of wider reporting on, um, you know, national security, law enforcement, kind of foreign affairs issues, which will be very interesting to, you know, our audience. Um, you know, because I understand that as an investigative journalist, um, that's where you've done a lot of your, lot of your work. Um, <clears throat> so I suppose with, without kind of asking you to divulge anything about the individuals, of course, that you've interacted with, but I was wondering if you might be able to explain how you go about working with sources for these types of sensitive kind of themes. Um, you know, is it is it difficult to get people to, to speak with you when you are doing a story on, you know, I know you've done some things on in the law enforcement community or on national security issues? Yeah, it's very difficult. Um, these are areas shrouded in great secrecy. Um, and where there are a lot of people who want to, want to keep it that way. Um, but you know, you, you find many who, um, uh, who, who believe there are issues that, that need to be uncovered. So, um, I guess in terms of, of developing sources, um, you know, once you have a, a subject area, um, you just go about, um, uh, you just go about uh, developing that contact book, mm. and often through doing stories, you just you develop more and more. Um, and I think you know one of the key ways to then find stories is is to keep in contact with those people, talk to them regularly, um, demonstrate through your work that you're someone that they can trust, uh, and um, Suddenly they start yeah. telling you things. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I started, uh, I guess, one of my early um, reporting jobs was as a, as a police reporter for the ABC based in Sydney. Um, so that was how I, I developed my law enforcement contacts there. And it was um, having around, it was a great way to do that um, because, you know, every day, uh, you have an opportunity to to add a new couple of people um, to your to your contact list, uh, and from there I, I did a lot of um, reporting uh, on Islamic State and, and and terrorism. It was sort of a natural progression. Mm. Um, 
which allowed me to develop um, contacts in the national security community. So um, that just develops over over time. Um, and uh, it wasn't anything particularly intentional, but I do think it's it's so much harder to find stories and when you're operating in uh, with subject matter mm. um, where you don't have that that contact book it's still absolutely worth doing and I, and I I um, uh, I regularly try to do stories that are outside um, my kind of comfort zone because um, well one I get bored easily <laughs> <laughs> um, but two I just want to keep broadening my my expertise, but but um, and knowledge base, but you certainly notice the difference when yeah. someone picks up the phone and has no idea who you are. Yeah. So so typically speaking, I suppose those people who are willing to work with you on a story um, and and might be the people that are kind of want to remain confidential and not be in front of the camera. Are there consistent motivations for those people that you discover, or is is it usually kind of fairly case by case as to why someone's willing to speak to you? Um, yeah, I mean, you get the people who are just very motivated to share something specific with you, um, something that they think was perhaps unjust or something where they just think the, the, the public needs to know. Um, you know, it can also fit into people's or an organization's agenda around what they think, um, needs to be part of the national conversation and they can't do that publicly. Um, and of course, you then, um, you know, you then balance that against your own assessment of whether, whether it's in the public interest. Um, other people, uh, you just get certain personality types, you yeah. know, everyone, everyone knows someone in the workplace that loves to have a gab, loves to gossip, <laughs> uh, enjoys, um, the attention perhaps. Um, and, um, they, they, those are all great, um, personality traits um, <laughs> but uh, uh yeah so so sometimes you just come across people who who like like to chat and um they're often great sources but but are often you know sharing things out of out of a sense of um of their own ethics as yeah. well so it's it's certainly no criticism and i suppose it's a, a bit of a balancing act where you like is it the case that you kind of have to think deeply about the motivations of the sources that are coming to you and, and sometimes potentially kind of balance out what they're telling you by, you know, going and speaking to someone else and adding a little bit of information? Do you kind of have to scrutinise them a bit? I think you always have to think about people's motivations um, and you often don't, you sometimes don't know mm. um, what you're being drawn into, um, what the bigger game might be for or game plan might be for that person. But ultimately I think... Um, no matter what someone's motive is, uh, if if it's a story that needs to be told, uh, you know, mm. so be it. And you, you of course need to um, you need to find multiple sources. You need to um, balance their perspective against uh, others with people you talk to. Um, but I think. Um, you know, my motive is to uh, uncover stories um, that are in the public interest. Um, their motive might be completely different. Um, 
but if it's if it's a story that people need to know then it's as simple as that in my view yeah interesting okay um you know it, it's often said um by some observers that that the australian national security community has a kind of higher level of secrecy than even its you know american and, and british counterparts and sometimes you do you know you observe us media for example you know you can see stories where you know they're quoting sources from the cia and these sorts of things would you agree do you think broadly with that assessment that, that australia's culture for these agencies is perhaps a little bit more closed off oh yeah uh, absolutely um and frankly not just for those agencies but um for the entire public service uh i think um people are are, are very scared to to or wary of, of of speaking out even doing so anonymously and um you know it doesn't help that we see um whistleblowers uh targeted um uh as criminals mm. uh under under the law and and we have um uh you know extremely strict secretary secrecy provisions in our legislation um i don't think there's a a culture of openness in our public service and and in 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 our security agencies of course and i think that's to the nation's detriment mm. yeah i think that there's uh a need for agencies to be perhaps more proactive and creative in the way they engage with the media. You know, we saw last year um, head of MI6 here in here in the UK, you know, made a made a speech saying that um, MI6 needed to be more open to remain secret, you know, in its engagement. So maybe there'll be a cultural step change that we might see happen in Australia one day soon. Yeah, and and we you know we are seeing we have seen ASIO, um, you know, through Mike Burgess uh, engaging more mm. publicly. Um, you know, it looks like that's happening with other agencies as well. But of course, um, there's every risk for them of that backfiring. And, mm. and, you know, we saw the way that, uh, you know, that, that, uh, the, the speech about the uh, election plot recently was, was used by, um, politicians and, and, um, you know, we saw the way that Mike Burgess was, you know, drawn into that and, and tried to, I guess, regain mm. control of that narrative, or was required then to to do some more talking to, um, uh, so that his statements weren't politicised. So you know, obviously, um, uh, uh, obviously there are risks from their perspective too. Um, but I think the more that Australians can learn about what's really going on and the more journalists can be helped to help them do that, um, the more, uh, you know, the, the, the more educated they are in, in yeah. making their choices, decisions, assessments about what they need to worry about. Yeah, and it, I suppose it goes to that, the transparency that, that journalists provide to society. Mm. Um so, I mean, kind of touching on that, we've we've had a debate in Australia, I suppose, in recent years concerning national security reporting and kind of how we get that balance right on, you know, on the one hand, the public interest imperative um, to tell people what's going on, uh, but versus the kind of national interest that's often used to kind of keep things a little bit more secret and confidential. You know, do you, do you kind of have a philosophy or kind of ethical measure in your own mind about 
kind of how you make this judgment between what is in the public interest versus what is in you know worth uh, being kept secret. Um, you know, and and typically, I suppose within your team within the ABC, you know, how does that kind of decision get considered? Like, if you've got a if you've got a story where you're kind of balancing up and saying it's this. This is this potentially has a strong public interest, but there is potentially like a national security dimension to this, and there could be ramifications. You know, how do you weigh that up? Well, it's not my job to keep things secret. <laughs> <laughs> um, quite, quite the opposite. Um, I think uh, the only times when we really do that is when someone um, says to us, for, you know, from an agency. Um, what the clear, uh, what the clear risks are, you know, if it's a, a risk to someone's safety, um, if it, uh, undermines an operation, but, you know, we can report on the operation when it's done. Um, those are things we might hold back on, mm. uh, on, on doing right away. Um, but, you know, generally my, you know, my, um, my priority is is to is to tell Australians um, what's a, what's actually happening. Mm. So there are times when um, you're encouraged to to not report something, but the reasons are very vague. Mm. Those aren't those aren't things we'll agree to. It has to be um, it has to be quite clear and. Um, uh, Quite a lot of honesty is required from from um, the agency or police force or whatever towards to us about the reasons why we we couldn't do something. Um, so you'd probably like to see a little bit more of that. The uh, uh, absolutely, yeah. but you know, for example, um, one of my colleagues on the investigations team, uh, Elise Worthington, did a Four Corners story last year. Um, uh, about a, a cult, uh, and the cult leader was arrested um, by the AFP. Um, thanks to the evidence that she had gathered, um, and and that her team had gathered, uh, and you know she she held off on reporting the story um, until after until after his arrest. So uh, it definitely happens, but. Um, you know, uh, a, a vague, uh, a vague fear that it's going to undermine security isn't mm. isn't really good enough. Yeah, and and I suppose there's probably quite a lot of stories that, you know, the vast the vast majority of the time you can still report it in some way, shape, or form, um, without it compromising, you know, safety or or a security issue. This kind of yeah, I, I think it I think it depends on it depends on the story. Um, it totally depends on the story, and then there are many that we just can't tell because of uh, the severity of, of the legislation. Mm, right. You know, say like uh, someone someone who's um, has been involved in an intelligence operation and as an informant, for example, and wants to talk. Um, you know, they would be doing so. Um, uh, doing so, they'd be accepting. The risk that they might go to jail for for a long time. Mm. So there, there's a we're prohibited by a lot of legislation, and um, you know, defamation law is is another one that that limits us quite a lot. 
Um, well, I don't want to take up too much of your time, and I'm, I am really appreciative that you've taken the time to speak to me and our audience because I know this is your recuperation time before you uh, go back uh, to Ukraine potentially for kind of an undefined <laughs> period of time as you continue to cover this story. So thank you so much for taking time to speak with me. And, you know, please, it's perhaps trite to say it, but please stay safe. Uh, you know, wish you all the well, uh, all, all the best when you return to Ukraine. Um, and thank you for, you know, the public interest journalism that you're doing to bring the story to Australians. Um, I think it's been really valuable. So thanks so much, Sean. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm I'm um, genuinely humbled um, by the opportunity to to um, speak with your audience. So thanks very much. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.